Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the 2023 year-end episode of Fick Focus. It's going to be a fun one today as the Fixed Strategy Research Team comes together to offer something memorable from the year that was and what might be ahead for 2024. Macro matters, masters of the universe, EM lens and look through, state of distressed, FX moment, credit crunch, the whole Fick family is here, with the exception of our dear friend Tanvir Sandu, who is too busy on vacation. But before we go there, on behalf of the Fixed Strategy Research Team here at Bloomberg Intelligence, we do want to thank our followers and listeners for tuning in in 2023. We'd also like to thank the many exceptional and expert guests who have joined us over the course of the year. It certainly has been an honor, a pleasure, and quite a bit of fun, and we look forward to continuing to grow together in 2024. But before uh, the team here feels tempted to break into an edition of uh, Old Lang Syne, let me bring in the macro matters master, Ira Jersey. So Ira, you know, you're really the old man on the podcast block here. So I guess that's why we start with you. What do you think was the most memorable thing for 2023? Well, uh, well, there were a lot of memorable things this year. We had uh, Anna Wong on from uh, many times talking about the, uh, the, the various Fed outlooks and uh, a lot of great external guests, uh, chief investment officers and and portfolio managers. So, uh, but the one that really sticks out was actually from our 200th edition of the Fick Focus podcast this year, uh, and that was Robert Tip from uh, from PGM, and his line that said there is no hope on the U.S. federal deficit front where um, he doesn't see federal deficits coming down much at all. Uh, he's worried about the fiscal situation in the long run. Uh, but at the same time, he it was of the belief that the Federal Reserve, once they do cut, is not going to cut below 3%. So, um, so, so basically, he has a, a reasonably decent uh, outlook on uh, where inflation's going and, and doesn't think that interest rates are going to fall as much as, uh, certainly as, as much as I think that they ultimately will. Um, so, so that was certainly, you know, one of the big highlights was, um, you know, just this, just this view, uh, just the variety of views that came from a number of different managers where some people are like uh, Mr. Tip and other people um, were, uh, were, you know, less hawkish and some less dovish. And, um, the, you know, the most dovish people do think that the, the Federal Reserve has to cut because of deficits and, and uh, in order to maintain the fiscal sustainability of the country and, and not have uh, interest payments be so massive uh, that, um, uh, th that they think the Fed's going to have to cut even more. So those people are, are probably very bullish. And, and if they were long at, at, in December, uh, they probably had a pretty good month to, uh, to end the year. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you're kind of highlighting some of that sort of binary sort of disposition that we have seen play out in markets, certainly over the course of this year. So I guess that kind of does raise the big question in terms of what's in store for 2024. Is it more of the same? Is it more of this sort of whipsaw action, or do you think we're going to start to build in a little bit more of a trend in one direction or the other? Yeah, well, I think volatility is going to continue to creep into the markets as the size of the market gets so big and the, the plumbing, the financial plumbing actually is might actually start to contract a little bit with some of the most recent SEC actions. You could uh, 
continue to see very large uh, moves in the market. Uh, but I do think that ultimately we'll end the year with uh, Treasury yields lower. Uh, at some point, we'll probably uninvert the yield curve uh, or at least get the yield curve exceptionally flat where uh, two-year yields in the front end end up uh, moving down more significantly. Um, but it, I don't think it's a one-way street, right? We will have to pick tactically. Um, we'll have to pick points in order to kind of unwind and, and maybe take some profits here and there. Um, but but ultimately, uh, you, you know, it's it looks very likely that Treasury yields are going to end closer to 3% than to 4%. Um, that's not saying much as we record today because uh, we, we, after the after the 40 basis point rally following the, the Federal Reserve's uh, December meeting, um, you know, that, that seems uh, less like an impossibility uh, than it did just a couple of weeks ago when, when Treasury yields were upwards of 5% on the 10-year. Interesting. So, I mean, I guess staying with the macro theme here, let's go currency uh, and bring in Audrey Child Freeman. She's our host of FX Moment. Audrey, same questions to you here. What what kind of really stuck out to you? I mean, it was a, a kind of a crazy year for the dollar as well as the yen is another one that sort of jumps out. Uh, I guess sort of what was the big 2023 theme, whether guests or, or dynamics that you saw in the market? Yes. So first of all, I'm extremely grateful to all the guests that joined FX Moment this year. Um, I was just looking back at what we covered, and we covered a wide range of different topics within FX, from de-dollarization with my colleague Stephen Chu to UK economic challenges, cyclical, structural with Dan Hansen. Uh, and also we had uh, an excellent selection of external guests that we've uh, an episode on the Swiss focus with BCG, uh, Valérie Lemaigre. But uh, there's one episode I quite um, like to get a mention, a particular mention on this, uh, on this year-end uh, recap. It's, it's the episode with uh, Mark Anderson at the beginning of the year. So I think it's quite interesting. Sometimes, you know, you go back and look, what was I saying at the beginning of the year? And Mark and I were actually agreeing on a wide range of, of prospect for the currency market. And as we all know, it's, it's been a, a real you know, roller coaster. We started off very well being bearish on, on the dollar and the narrative worked out really nicely. And then we had a very long phase of you know, being questioned with the view and being questioned with the US recession narrative and the Fed prospect. And then suddenly, uh, you know, six weeks uh, uh, close to the end of the year, uh, we look in very good shape again, and I suppose this, you know, this is this is the virtues of the foreign exchange market. You know, the, the ability to be able to identify what's going to drive the market and what's priced in, and, and where we go from here. So, so I, I'm, I guess I'm not entirely surprised that your favorite episode was one where the guest agreed with you. Um, maybe we talk a little bit. <laughs> Maybe we talk a little bit about it in terms of what the expectation is for 2024. Obviously, a lot of talk about the dollar. Uh, is that sort of really where things are going to key off of in 2024? Yes. I mean, it really feels like deja vu in terms of what we identifying as likely driver for the currency market and for the dollar next year. I mean, I, I suspect, you know, this year versus a year ago, a year ago, we were, more, we were still focusing on inflation peak uh, and rate peak. And now we, we're on the next stage where inflation has peaked already. And the, the next key focus is uh, timing in terms of central bank easing and 
who's going to go first, what will be the pace and magnitude. So I, I suspect, you know, we're all turning into data watchers again. And our working, central working assumption is that, you know, the U.S. economic recession is unfolding and will continue to unfold early next year. Uh, we've associated Fed rate cuts, uh, expectations, and a risk on context that's crucial because it ticks, it then ticks all the boxes for dollar downside. And my only concern in terms of the call is that, you know, we've seen this narrative back on for a few weeks now. Um, it is gaining momentum, and I suspect it will continue to gain momentum uh, in, in the next few weeks and early next year. So there, there's always the risk that, you know, by early Q1, uh, you've seen a massive move in the market. It's all priced in, and you kind of think, you know, what next? How much more downside you need from the U.S. economy for the next leg lower in the dollar to happen? So, you know, I guess like Ira says, you, you have to be pragmatic. Uh, with the view and, you know, nothing is a one-way trade, but the narrative, I think, applies uh, like it did last year. It's just that one year on, we are a, at a more advanced stage in the cycle and, you know, the recession story is more likely to unfold um, early, early in the year. So maybe let's stick with sort of the, the narrative and pragmatism, changing gears a little bit. Damien Sassauer. I'm I'm stealing myself for this conversation or this part of the conversation because I haven't had enough coffee yet. But Damien's the host of EM Lens and Look Through, high energy, super smart. Damien, I'm going to go in reverse with you in terms of, as opposed to talking about 2023, let's talk about 2024 first, uh, as it's really kind of like the year of the election, not just in the U.S., but pretty much across the world. Uh, a lot of impacts in your space. So what do you think is the big story for 2024? Is it, is it the election dynamic? Is there some place that stands out or, or are your eyes elsewhere? Well, no, thank you for the introduction. I think our audience on Fick Focus knows me very well, but I appreciate the introduction nevertheless. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, so look, I mean, in terms of looking ahead to 2024, it's the pass-through from U.S. Treasuries into risk markets that, in our opinion, will indeed be the primary driver of EM debt performance looking ahead. The question is, is it going to be a soft or hard landing? Because that's everything in terms of which um, which asset classes, which countries are going to perform or underperform. I mean, if we are indeed on the verge of a soft landing here in the U.S., better capital flows into EM, less fear of inflation uh, resurging, um, and really, quite frankly, more policy space for central banks to cut. And in that sort of an environment, Asia is probably likely to outperform. So, you know, that's kind of where we're sticking. If you, if you do believe it's going to be a hard landing, you kind of want to kind of teeter more toward those economies that have higher yields, bigger carry cushions like Latin America, because it just gives you a little bit more leeway if things go south on you. But taking all that back, if we look ahead to 2024, I mean, my goodness, we've had a big move here in the first few weeks of December. I mean, we had initially been looking at something on the order of almost a double digit return for EM dollar credit in 2024. Well, We've had a pretty big move here in December, so I think we're stealing from the future. And the same in EM local. You know, EM local yields tend to follow U.S. Treasury yields, and they've all come in on on on, on the expectation that the Fed's going to be cutting that much more here in 2024, and certainly in the first quarter. So, you know, we had been looking for something on the order of a six to seven percent uh, return in 2024. I imagine we're going to have to revise that a little bit as well, but. Look, I mean, let's just take a step back and look at the fundamentals picture here in uh, in emerging markets. We had about, oh, I don't know, 4, 4.1% growth in emerging markets in, 
2023. We expect that to come off a bit to something on the order of 3.8%. A lot of that has to do with China. Uh, China, we, you know, probably will see something on the order of 5% growth next year, but it could definitely be front-loaded in the first half. We think as you get further on in 2024, you're going to be four, four and a half percent growth in China. We just think they're going to have a lot of trouble um, getting the economy sorted in the near term. Um, and then on the inflation front, look, I mean, we do expect both headline and core CPI to fall another 100 basis points in 2024 across the whole of EM. I mean, we probably are looking at both core and headline converging at something on the order of three and a half percent toward the end of next year. So, Look, I mean, that's heavily reliant on continued disinflation in core goods, something that we are calling for. But, you know, look, there's still a number of countries like Poland, Hungary, Romania, Colombia, where you're going to see CPI remain above target. And so it still is a course of concern. Um, let's talk about these rate cut cycles, Noel. I mean, we can't avoid them. We've seen them begin in Brazil, China, Chile, Hungary, <laughs> Peru, and Poland. But we're going to see a lot more begin in 2024. We're going to see Colombia, Czech, India, perhaps. Uh, Israel, Mexico, Romania. I mean, by my reckoning, okay, just just naming all, like spinning the globe and naming all the countries doesn't really count as an answer. But there's only I, three of the 18 that aren't going to be cutting. So that just gives <laughs> all a sense of the contribution to total return that comes from lower interest rates in 2024. So all right, so the so only point I was making. All right, so you spoke to some of the rate cuts that we got in 2023. Is that sort of the story as you look back at 2023, or is, or is there a, a specific theme or content or a guest uh, that really stuck out to you in terms of the year that was? So we had some great guests. Um, you know, the ones that stick out to me, and I have to just, you know, thank everyone from Kevin Daly at Aberdeen to Shamila Khan at UBS, and I'm not picking favorites here, but the ones that really stood out for me were at mid-year in June, we had Phoenix Kalen on um, from SockGen, and she had the audacity to step out with a bullish outlook for EM. And this was not an environment where you should be recommending anyone to go long duration. And she had the chutzpah to do that. And she was right. And she, you know, and, and so I look back at Phoenix and I, I applaud her for that view. The other guest we had was in October, Saad Siddiqui of JP Morgan called for a taper with no tantrum. And look, EM has remained impressively resilient on, uh, you know, despite slower China growth. I mean, at that point, we had rising oil prices. U.S. Treasury yields were literally at an all-time high of the cycle, so kudos to him. Um, certainly, I think we're probably due for a little bit of a pullback here now, but yeah, those are the two guests in all that really stood out to me. Yeah, it is interesting to think about uh, sort of the stages in which 2023 has sort of metamorphosed, right? I mean, from the, the hyper bullish to the hyper bearish to the hyper bullish back to the hyper bearish and now uh, kind of closing on a, a more bullish tone. So I guess now maybe we turn to uh, he who has the power, that is the masters of the universe host, Eric Kazansky. So I guess 2023, a little bit like the cartoon for your space. You had kind of a Skeletor-like returns for much of the year. And then over the last couple of months, maybe more of a steroid-induced, or maybe it wasn't steroid-induced, but a He-Man-like market for those uh, that I guess are old enough to remember the cartoon. <laughs> what stuck out to you for 2023? Uh, just how wrong we were in the beginning of the year, right? I mean, everyone came into 2023 in my market anticipating just a, a bear market for rates, and everyone was caught off sides in the last two months. And look, 
by far and large, this is hugely positive for our space as everybody's sort of like, you know, going around celebrating these 5% returns, 7% for a muni high yield. It's great for the space. What we haven't seen is a meaningful return of mutual fund inflows that would really signal that the fixed income sector as far as tax exempts are truly back. And that sort of leads me to pivot to like sort of like the bigger moments for 2023 when we look back at all our guests. And I think it's more of a theme that I want to highlight rather than a singular guest, but we talked to a lot of separately managed account managers this year, and it really sort of reinforced um, you know, our thought process that we outlined in January that we're seeing a wholesale shift when it comes to where dollars are being allocated in our space. They're moving from high cost mutual funds to lower cost separately managed accounts. Um, so when you look at sort of where money's coming into the space, it looks negative, but a lot of that stuff is sort of hidden in the shadows and AUM has actually grown. Um, and it's been a huge shift in our space and we're gonna think that's gonna be a really big theme going into 2024. Okay, so do you need to talk about 2024? Sure, I'd love to talk about <laughs> 2024. <laughs> Look, I mean, obviously like we're gonna be drafting off where, where Ira thinks the, the puck is going as far as rates, right? And we're gonna sort of follow with some strength here. Um, the good thing is I think Munis have a lot of positive tailwind from a demand standpoint coming into January. Um, it's always been that way, seasonality effect. Um, you know, I think the other thing that's happening in a constructive way is that credit's gonna be repriced into our space. And I think that's gonna create some interesting opportunities for people who are newer to the sector and can get a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of credit risk that accurately prices in um, if we go into a recessionary environment. And look, if California is the sort of the leading indicator of where the economy is going, projecting that they're going to have a $68 billion deficit over the next two years is certainly a harbinger that I think people should pay more attention to for the broader economy. And then I guess while we got you, maybe issuance, because that was sort of an issue this past year, right? So is there is there a sort of an expectation for next year? Uh, you know what? We don't like to get into the guessing game as far as how many bonds are going to be issued. But, you know, just to sort of keep the lights on in our industry, there's about $400 billion coming back to investors over the next year. And I think that's easily going to be digested by supply on the other side. Um, what we've seen over the last two months is that there was a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines waiting for a buying opportunity. And new issue supply was oversubscribed 13 15, 20 times in some instances. So there's ample demand there. Um, you know, if rates sort of come back down, I think we could see some refundings on the taxable muni side come into play and that could really give a boost to issuance next year. Excellent. So let's maybe now turn to Credit Crunch. And so with Credit Crunch, we got a couple of additions. We got a EU edition, which is the the grandfather of the group, and then the US edition. So Mahesh Bingalingam, let's maybe start with you. I mean, you're typically amongst the most bullish people on the fixed focus strategy team. Uh, you know, and and I, guess, so I guess, I guess you ended up sort of kind of correct here this year. So, so what yeah. kind of stood out to you with 2023? I think uh, an easy one would be the podcast that you and me had together, a U.S. versus Europe one. A complete contrast, how bearish you were and how bullish I was. Uh, one of us would be right. <laughs> it turned out in my favor. Uh, in the European high yield, I think, is uh, the best performing peak asset class among all of ours. Uh, I'm not saying it will do the same next year. Uh, but I think this uh, default wave uh, fear-mongering that the press does, particularly in Europe, hasn't happened. Uh, and I think we've had quite a few guests on our uh, podcast uh, highlighting that fact. You know, who... People who were credit folks knew the story. 
the ones who were not obviously were you know were sitting on the fear mongering bandwagon so quite a few of the credit expert pms who turned up i think uh, most of them were in agreement and they were right the ones who were not who are all like very macro you know either they are like cross asset or their outside credit for folks uh are they been wrong so yeah the, the other standard episodes in our uh, ch- chain were the ones that are not market related so we did three thematics so the first thematic one was on credit index futures uh and uh, you know the bloomberg indices are the benchmarks for uh, credit index futures just like you know commodities and uh, everything else but government bonds have futures credit didn't have that so i think we are going to get those starting to trade and uh, i think we had an episode on that very well received there is a, there was another episode on esg and sustainability in credit now how relevant it is at that time obviously the man who came on was head of sustainability at hermes and uh, we had a pretty long discussion on that episode was given the topic i think it was well received but you need to note that uh, it's probably the lowest count among all the podcasts i've done uh something and then the last one was uh, the the one with the 2024 outlook we did one with uh, a private credit focus i mean given that lot of money is coming into the markets from private credit now given that public credit particularly in europe uh, has been a bit throttled uh, i think that episode is still going on by the way it's receiving a lot of uh, downloads i'm i'm presuming that going into 2024 that episode will be very relevant not not just because of our 2024 outlook. Yeah. All the episodes are still going on. That's that's the beauty of the internet. So I I mean I guess uh, 2024 you know what's uh, what kind of what are you looking for? Is it as good of a yeah, year? You, you, less you good know of a year? me. Yeah, you know me. Yeah, yeah I know. So, 100%, 100% returns for everything. I got it. Yeah, exactly. So what else? So so next year I think will be it may will not be as good as this year, but as you heard from uh, Ira at the start if that view plays out i think it's the year of the bond if you if you are going to be short fixed income particularly short fixed short credit i think it's a very bad idea uh, so maybe my return forecast that i published maybe i have to dial them down by 1% uh, i will see once december 31st is finished uh, but uh, i think uh, investment grade should do 4 to 5 uh, european high yield should do 7 to 8 a leverage loan should do uh, eight to nine uh, and i still stick to that unless there is a mega rally from now to december 31st that's the sort of numbers i'm looking at and no default wave. all right so let's maybe bring in uh, our u.s counterpart here sam guyer sam co-host the u.s edition of credit crunch with me and uh, given that sam i am definitely pretty curious as to what your 2023 highlight was yeah, I mean, besides uh, co-hosting with me, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, we've we've had uh, quite a few guests, and like you mentioned, I think we're the the new kids on the block in terms of the the Fic Focus podcast. But uh, I mean, we we've had a pretty diverse group of guests that we've had come on from you know public markets, some quantitative, and then uh, the private credit world. Which uh, I would say, if I had to pick one, I think that the private credit topic is one that's been pretty hot. Just uh, in in the the media right now, and then in terms of you know, I think there's been multiple guests that have brought it up. Just in terms of of what people think of when they think private credit, a lot of it is just 
um, associated in associating that with one particular area of the private credit world. So, I mean, we've seen a pretty diverse group, though, uh, do a lot of different areas uh, from, you know, Jack Ross at Waterfall, talking about, you know, him being in at the ground level of the structured credit world um, and the evolution that he's seen. And then uh, Evan Carruthers at Castle Lake talking about aviation financing and then even uh, an episode that we have coming out here shortly. So if you are a listener, keep an eye out for that. Uh, from Dan Peterzak of KKR, just talking about you know the wide variety of asset-based structures that they're engaged in. So um, I, I think it's a pretty diverse world, but one that that uh, the the media I think portrays in one particular lens. So it's been a, a good year, and looking forward to 2024. Yeah, no, it's definitely it's been uh, sort of a hot button space and. Uh a lot of attention sort of going there. So 2024, you know, are, are there things you look forward to? I know you spent a lot of time, you know, looking at sort of the issuance side, the rating side uh, and everything. Are, are there things that sort of jump out to you in terms of uh, what's uh, in the year ahead? Yeah, yeah. From from the ratings world, um, you know, 2023, in terms of what happened, we had a pretty significant amount of downgrades. High yield was kind of the, the focused area, I would say. And I think in 2024, we're going to see high yields stay in that focus area, but um, I think it'll be a little bit more positive. I think they're going to see some more upgrades happen across the high yield spectrum, and I think we could see a little bit of a shift in terms of the dynamic between fallen angels and rising stars. Uh, we we have a, a model internally that we use that that's showing um, right now that that fallen angels could start to pick up a little bit more uh, heading into the new year. So. Uh, we'll be keeping an eye on that because 2023 we saw rising stars kind of the the dominant action between the two um, and then you know from a fundamentals perspective too uh, we've seen some pretty steady erosion throughout the past year and then in 2024 i think we're going to start to see uh, some some more erosion i think a lot of that driver has been the, the higher interest rates from the fed interest coverage has kind of been beaten down both across investment grade and high yield um, and then if we start to see, you know, some GDP growth start to slow down a little bit more, I think that's going to start to push into some other fundamental metrics. But uh, I'll, I'll pass it off to you, Donald, to, to add in a little bit more commentary <laughs> there, too. Yeah, I mean, I guess on the fundamental side, I think one of the interesting things is, is uh, you know, they've steadied down a little bit, but it feels more delay than, than uh, you know, off track in terms of, you know, just given the nature of uh, the, the government level spending and the deficits that we've been running uh, have sort of filtered through and helped sort of more of those marginal players. But, but yeah, no, I think it's been a, a fascinating year. Uh, you know, the private credit topic has been super interesting. Uh, issuance obviously is like, going to get a boost in the next year if we keep going where we're going with rates. And then we'll have to see with returns. I mean, on investment grade, I think uh, as goes rates, obviously investment grade will follow. So you could be, you know, sort of mid-high single digits there. Uh, you know, again, sort of to Mahesh's point, depending on where we finish the year, I'm a little less sanguine on the high yield side, just because I do think that risk is completely mispriced in that market right now. Uh, and so regardless of where rates go, given that you only have a duration profile that's sitting around a little over three years, uh, you know, you just don't have enough vig in the rates piece to make up for what kind of spread erosion that you can see there. So I, I would look for something a lot lower than mid single digits. So maybe you're kind of neutral to low single digits there, but let's maybe pivot now to, to one of the other uh, old podcasts on the street. And uh, that would be state of distress debt. Nagisa Baluku, Phil Brindell, come on in. 
Now, you're each in a distinct area of the distressed and bankruptcy landscape, so maybe we start with the litigation side and with you, Nagisa. Uh, uh, there seem to be a number of intriguing things over the course of 2023 in the bankruptcy landscape, whether you're talking the Texas two-step, a lot of stuff in the crypto sector, and then I guess more currently and ongoing sort of the dynamic with the Supreme Court and the Purdue Pharma opioid settlement, et cetera. What kind of sticks out to you from the year that was? So, I mean, I'd say that nothing has probably permeated general public discourse in the space uh, this past year as much as the likes of J&J and 3M, as you mentioned, trying to leverage the bankruptcy system to resolve mass tort liability, uh, much as we said about J&J, a company with a better credit rating than the U.S. government using the Texas two-step to get into it, to get its talk liabilities to bankruptcy. I think we were lucky enough this past year to have many different viewpoints in the on the podcast, sometimes conflicting. Um, just come to address this general shift from uh, non-bankruptcy system to bankruptcy. We had Rob Stark of Brown Rudnick in uh, January starting. He represented the, uh, the official committee of talk claimants in J&J. He had obviously a lot to talk about, a lot to say about this. He talked extensively about bankruptcy maybe not being as efficient as people think it is. And also generally uh, talking about these maneuvers as potentially holding this tort cases hostage to get weaker settlements out of them. But then we also had um, Professor Ralph Brubaker in uh, in August, very different from January to August, sort of very different legal landscape. Then uh, he uh, is very outspoken against these maneuvers, uh, very much opposes them, written extensively both to the circuit courts as well as Supreme Court most recently. So that was an interesting viewpoint. But we did sort of close up this this theme with. Uh, Chris Hansen of Paul Hastings uh, towards the end of the year, who has most recently actually represented lawyers who back Johnson & Johnson's attempt to resolve these cases in bankruptcy. So this was very much the other side of the coin, and it was really interesting to have that viewpoint. Uh, Chris spoke specifically about this shift away from the tort system what efficiency may mean to tort defendants, why this could be a good a, a good option for them, how Chapter 11 may lend a hand. But also he talked a lot about sort of the general implications of this to, to other cases, what the standard for dismissing bankruptcy case, what does it mean to be in financial distress, what's a good faith filing, what is not. So uh, I, I think we're just really lucky to have very different viewpoints uh, on this topic, which was very, continues to be very interesting in the space. Yeah, that was a fascinating conversation, particularly in the context of some of the other conversations that came through. Uh, 2024, anything that you're sort of, you've got your eye on in terms of things that are moving through uh, uh, the courts that you think will have implications or? Yeah, so as you said, there's it's not every year you promise an important bankruptcy decision from Supreme Court in bankruptcy, with also far-reaching implications in the space. Uh, Talking talk about Purdue here, we're going to get that in 2024, probably the middle of the year. Uh, the court just days ago heard oral argument in the case, so we're going to see where the where that where that case falls and also what what the impact would have on bankruptcy settlements well generally but also potentially on the ability of non-bankrupt third parties to get rid of their own liabilities through the bankruptcy of another party sort of it's, it's a very broad topic there um 
I guess uh, personally, I'm excited. I'm interested to see where Yellow uh, goes. It's not uh, Phil. I think said last podcast it may be worth more dead than alive. So it's not often that you see equities striving for recoveries in a liquidation case. Um, but also, I mean, generally speaking, uh, I'm also interested to see where uh, the, the bankruptcy courts are very tend to focus on very specific bankruptcy cases tend to focus on very specific courts. I'm interested to see where uh, how big of a player the New Jersey bankruptcy courts will become in the new year as the Texas courts maybe fall a bit out of favor. All right. One vote for the Garden State. Here we go. Uh, lastly, Phil, uh, we turn to you saving the Best for last. I, I think we've been colleagues out of, out of everybody that does a podcast here. You and I have been colleagues the longest. So last licks to you. A lot of great conversations in 2023. A lot of unexpected market behavior. What resonates with you? Well, I think it's funny. You're ending with distress being, you know, a, a look of optimism going into the new year. Um, but it was, you know, I, I, in looking back, I, I listened to a lot of our old interviews and tried to get some themes that sort of stuck out to me. And surprisingly, everything ages really well. The only thing maybe is the exception to that would be your jokes, Snow. Um, but anyway, we'll and, move and on. a few points, but that's all right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so one of the perennial topics, I think it'll be a perennial topic on our podcast, is this creditor on creditor violence. And I, I, I thought it was fascinating to hear all the different opinions on that. Um, and, you know, just to uh, surveying uh, some of our guests on it, um, I'm just going to go through a lot of them because it, I, I think they're all interesting and it, it'll help form our listeners' opinions on, this, on, on the phenomena. Um, you know, Rob Stark at Brown Ruddick, who often is representing, you know, out of the money, junior creditors, he thinks creditor on creditor violence is a misnomer. He thinks it is more like a debtor lender cabal. Um, I thought that was a nice, interesting way of putting it. He said it used to be directors and officers in this country had personal liability when countries went into distress. The trust fund doctrine law uh, hung as a shadow and corporate counsel would advise boards to not be so aggressive. It's not worth it. Um, but that's no longer the case. The courts have basically told them, and this is Rob's quote, go ahead and fleece creditors if you think it's the right thing to do in your own personal decision. It is essentially their fault for not protecting themselves in their bargains, which, you know, strong words. Um, and then I love this one. He said some of these independent special committee blessings of transactions that, you know, hurt creditors may be whitewashing. And uh, and I love this one added. It's adding fair. <laughs> Let's fair, not give all the quotes. We got to We got to let people go back and listen to the actual. Podcast. Well, I enjoy this one. Add it's adding fairness padding. So uh, anyway. <laughs> Um, we heard much the same from Paul Goldschmidt at King Street. Uh, you know, he, he, actually, his take was, this is the world we live in. We have to make money. Um, and it's going to be a large opportunity for people who can write checks and have scale. Um, don't blame those sponsors and boards to protect their investors. Victor Kozla of Strategic Value Partners uh, echoed that. Um, and then uh, he, he just thinks it's a natural manifestation of, of uh what happens when you're running out of money and you're looking to raise it? Um, Nate Van Duzer of Fidelity, you know, he kind of gave us Fidelity's take on it. Um, 
They're looking for best shareholder return, not looking to take an aggressive stance to make a quick buck. Um, they're in it for the long haul and don't want a reputation for putting a knife in people's back. Um, and then Chris Hansen, who at Paul Hastings, he's, you know, his, his group has been the engineers behind some of these most infamous transactions. And he started off uh, discussing creditor on creditor violence with it's not personal. It's all about return on investment. Uh, so and then finally, uh, Andy Taylor of Carinade uh, at the end of the year uh, talked about uh, it's the art of the possible with regards to these loose documents. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting things, he gave some tips for the smaller guy who might be trying to navigate these waters. And he says, go with co-op agreements. Co-op agreements now have a lot of teeth. I guess they grew up a lot since I was investing. And then uh, experience and relationships help uh, and, and find allies early on to avoid being disenfranchised. So... Look, I, I, I think after listening to a lot of these discussions, it's pretty clear credit on credit or violence, as they call it, um, it's it's going to continue. It's the it's the reality of the world that we live in. And, uh, you know, it's uh, lenders and credit investors have to be uh, they have to have the skill set to uh, really make the, take advantage of it at, or at the very least not get hurt by it. All right. In 2024, are we are we still in the credit cycle or is it over? Are we going to see a distress cycle or is it over? Oh, it's so painful to like, I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it's, you know, we have higher rates. A lot of companies are like their cash, their cash hoards are uh, dwindling. That's not just the corporates, the, the consumer balance sheet as well. Um, you know, but right now, I consistently we see seasonality dominate these for uh, the these markets and i it wouldn't surprise me if we just see this uh melt up or at least i don't expect that distress supply is going to spike anytime soon just because of the seasonality of the year um you know november december all the way through may is usually pretty strong uh i guess march is sometimes troublesome but uh and i don't want to lean too much on technicals but you know i go back to some of the old adages i i learned when i was at tutor investment and one of them was you know uh listen to the tape and right now the tape is is on fire and uh you know if you're on the distress if you're a distressed person uh you do, you're 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 gonna have to wait a little bit longer before we're gonna see that real supply rise and those opportunities uh get created Interesting. Well, uh, thank you for that. And uh, I guess that kind of brings us to the conclusion here. So I'd like to thank all of our FIG Focus hosts for an informative and entertaining year of content to our listeners. Thank you once again for helping to make FIG Focus successful. We look forward to more great guests, more great content in the year ahead. Until then, on behalf of myself and the Bloomberg Intelligence Fixed Strategy Research Team, happy holidays and a safe and happy new year to all. This has been Thick Focus. <laughs>